Chapter 5 of Edward I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Caveat. Edward I by Professor T. F. Tout. Chapter 5 Edward's Continental Policy, 1272 to 1289. Edward had first learned his accession to the throne in Sicily. In February 1273, he bade adieu to Pope Gregory at Oviedo, and began his slow journey homewards. He was already a man of no small mark, and wherever he went, he received a most flattering reception. As he passed through Lombardy in great pomp, the people flocked to meet him with the cry of, Long live the Emperor Edward. The doctors of Padua made him a member of the legal faculty of their famous university. The Milanese presented him with horses richly caprisoned with scarlet. He formed friendships with princes and cities that in after years stood him in good stead. He finally traversed the lands of his great-uncle, the aged Count Philip of Savoy, crossing the Montesinus early in June and forcing a petty lord of the kingdom of Arles to perform homage to him as a punishment for plundering the baggage of the English on the way to the crusade. Once beyond the Alps, Edward was joined by a large number of English magnates so that he entered French territory at the head of a little army of more than a thousand lances. The boastful nobles of France had grown envious of Edward's fame as a warrior, and the Count of Chalon, on the Saone, a vassal of the Duke of Burgundy, challenged him to a passage of arms. The tournament was fought out with such desperate earnestness that it became plain that the French wished for something more than a mere chivalrous display. The Count and Edward fought fiercely against each other with swords, until the Count, despairing of finding a weak place in his enemy's harness, flung his arms heavily around the king's neck and sought to dismount him. But Edward struck his spurs into his horse so that the beast rushed rapidly forward and the count, dragged from his own charger, was thrown heavily to the ground. Meanwhile, the followers of both sides had fought with great eagerness and fury until at last the trained skill of the English prevailed over the superior numbers of the Burgundians. And the Count of Chalon, foiled in his treacherous plan, was obliged to surrender his sword to a simple knight. Both sides suffered heavily, and the tournament became famous as the Little Battle of Chalon. Edward now entered the domains of his cousin, Philip the Hardy, King of France. At the end of July he reached Paris, where he was entertained with great state. The cousins professed great affections for each other, but their love, as a shrewd French chronicler said, was like the love of cat and dog. There were important outstanding disputes. The secessions of lands in the south, promised by St. Louis in the Treaty of Paris in 1259, in return for Henry III's renunciation of all rights over Normandy, Anjou and Poitou, had never been made. The French had not surrendered the royal rights in the bishoprics of Limoges, Cahors and Perigot, i.e. the Limousine, Quercy and the Perigot, which by the treaty were to have been yielded at once. Moreover, on the death of 1271 of Philip's uncle, Alphonse, Count of Poitiers and Toulouse, and the precursor of direct French domination in the south, Philip had entered without scruple upon the possession of his vast inheritance and laid hands upon South Santon, the Agis and the Lower Quercy, which by the same Treaty of Paris were, on Alphonse's death without heirs, to fall to the English kings. Edward was anxious to vindicate his claims to a share of the inheritance in Alphonse of Poitiers, but he could obtain no satisfaction from the astute clerks and knights who guided the policy of the dull, well-meaning French king. All he could do was to perform the homage which, as Duke of Aquitaine, he owed as the King of France, in such ambiguous terms as suggest he still maintained his claims of right. Lord King, said Edward to Philip, I do you homage for all the lands which I ought to hold of you. 
With this reminder, Edward quitted the French court, leaving his lawyers to continue the long-drawn negotiations with his suzerain. Edward now went to Aquitaine, where his presence was urgently needed, and where he remained for more than a year. The duchy was still in that state of turbulence which, twenty years before, had proved too much even for the crafty policy and strong hand of Simon de Montfort. Moreover, the ministers of Philip of France were striving constantly to press forward their master's rights over the duchy, and the aggrieved vassals of the Duke of Guyon had grown well accustomed to appeal to the Seneschal of Perigord, who watched over French interests in those regions. In 1273 there were two wars raging at the furthest extremities of Edward's French dominions. In the cold uplands of the northeastern Aquitaine, the townsfolk of Limoges were carrying on a fierce struggle against their Vicantes, and mindful of the Treaty of Paris, called on Edward to protect them from her aggressions, which were more the formidable as they were backed up by the King of France. Edward at once espoused their cause. He sent his seneschal to Limoges to receive oaths of fealty from the burgesses. The man of Limoges took better heart at Edward's troops now joined their levies, and the joint forces inflicted several defeats on the Viscountess. Unsuccessful in the field, the Viscountess appealed to the court of King Philip for protection. In the autumn, the French king announced his decision, which was dictated as much by policy as by law of the case. Edward was to renounce forthwith the fealty of the men of Limoges, and the Viscountess was awarded full rights of jurisdiction over them. Edward faithfully accepted the situation and abandoned his new subjects to the fury of their mistress. He construed his feudal duties very literally, and he was punctilious in exacting his rights against his own vassals. He should be not forgotten that he was himself a pattern of feudal obedience to his own overlord, the King of France. Flushed with his triumph, Philip now demanded that all Edward's Aquitanian vassals should take direct oath of fealty to the King of France. More formidable than the War of Limoges was the War of Bern, whose Viscount Gaston, the leader of the feudal vassals of Edward, had contemptuously ignored a sentence of the ducal court and held out defiantly in his Pyrenean strongholds. Edward led an army against his rebellious subjects, and though he lost many men and horses from want of food and from the difficulty of carrying on his campaign on the rough hillsides and deep-cut valleys of the Bernese highlands, succeeded in reducing the enemy to the greatest extremities. Thereupon Gaston followed the example of the Viscount of Limoges and appealed to the French court. Philip then forbade Edward to pursue his attack on Gaston, pending the hearing of the suit. Edward's ministers grew indignant and urged their lord to disregard a command so injurious to his dignity. But the king's love of law triumphed over the impatience of his servants. He made a truce with Gaston, and having no further business in Aquitaine, started for England, travelling overland through France. On his way he negotiated at Montreuil-sur-Mer, a treaty with the Count of Flanders which settled an old-standing dispute that had had some time excluded English wool from the Flemish markets. On the 2nd of August, 1274, he crossed over to Dover. Queen Eleanor had accompanied him in all his journeys. The appeal of Gaston of Bern dragged on for some time in the Parliament of Paris, the highest law court in the king, of the King of France. The French lawyers wished well to the Viscount's suit, but their strict regard for feudal propriety made it hard for them to overlook the violence both of speech and act, which had marked Gaston's treatment of his immediate suzerain. Finally, Philip advised Gaston to go to London, make his submission to Edward, and excuse himself for his misdeeds. Edward received his vassal's submission, but with characteristic lawyer-like subtlety, he maintained that the submission was equivalent to a renunciation of Gaston's appeal to Paris, and that the sole point remaining was to determine the Viscount's punishment. Philip saw that he was outwitted, but the situation became less strained, 
since a personal reconciliation had followed Gaston's humiliation to Edward. The appeal was slightly dropped, and in 1279 Gaston was formally reinstated by Edward in the fiefs which he consummately had forfeited. The real triumph rested with the English king, and Gaston, for some years at least, kept the peace. In 1279, the long-standing difficulties between Edward and Philip were brought to a satisfactory conclusion. In May, Edward and Eleanor crossed over the Channel and took possession of the county of Ponthieu, which had just fallen to the Queen as the heiress of her mother, Joan, the Dowager Queen of Castile and Leon, and Countess of Ponthieu, who had just died. This county, whose capital was Abbeville, included a fertile region on the Lower Somme. Philip of France now came to Armines, where he was joined by Edward. On the 23rd of May, the Treaty of Armines, for which the diplomatists had been so long working, was signed by the two kings. By it, Philip ceded Arjan and the Argenese's right, thus adding to Edward's lands the fair and fruitful plain of the middle of the Garonne. The French king also promised to submit Edward's claims over Quercy to a commissioning inquiry, which eight years later assigned to Edward a large number of fiefs in the lower and richer parts of that region. Philip also renounced the oath of allegiance which he had demanded in 1275 of the Aquitanian vassals of Edward, a concession which he made with more grace, as very few of Edward's subjects had condescended to take the oath so contrary to French feudal custom. Moreover, he confirmed Eleanor in her newly won county of Ponthieu, in return for these great concessions, Edward solemnly abandoned all further claims on French territory. Thus the disputes which had been going on since the time when Philip Augustus had driven King John out of Normandy were finally brought to an end. Every important subject of contention between the two kings was removed. Edward had won great reputation by his firmness and moderation with which he had pursued his ends. He had gained no small advantages in return for very shadowy renunciations, had shown clearly to all Europe that the English king was not to be trifled with. During the years of unfriendly negotiations between England and France, Edward had sought to strengthen himself on every side against a possible attack of his overlord. He had renewed friendly relations with his brother-in-law, Alfonso the Wise of Castile, though he had sought to protect the widowed Queen Blanche of Navarre from the aggressions of a powerful neighbour. He had sought in 1273 to marry Blanche's daughter, the infant Queen Joan, now nominal sovereign of Navarre and Champagne, to one of his sons, but though he failed in this, he succeeded in 1275 in marrying Blanche herself to his own brother, Edmund of Lancaster. Blanche was not allowed by the French to exercise her rights as guardian of her daughter in Navarre, but she still ruled over her husband's county of Champagne in her daughter's name. And Edmund was now associated with her as regent of one of the most important fiefs in the French crown and, until his daughter-in-law attained her majority, he practically held the position of one of the great peers of France, and ensured a powerful influence being exercised in his favour in all dealings in that country. Moreover, Edward had firm friends at Philip's court. Philip's mother, Margaret of Provence, was a sister of Edward's mother, Eleanor. She was an enthusiast for the English alliance, and the strong influence which she possessed over her sluggish son during the early years of his reign may well be the chief reason that prevented the ever-smouldering animosities of the two kings from breaking out into open war. But Margaret, like all her kindred, was a strong partisan of her family interests, and never turned her eyes away from those lands between the Alps and the Rhone, which were now gradually slipping into French hands. She joined with her sister, Eleanor, in cordially hating Charles of Anjou, who had, with the hand of their younger sister, Beatrice, filled from the elder sisters the rich country of Provence, which he now used as a stepping stone to his kingdom of Naples. Now Edward also hated the Angevin, 
who had supplanted his brother Edmund in his Italian kingdom and had backed up the ruffianly Montforts, the murderers of his cousin Henry of Almain. Urged on by his mother, who still exercised real influence over him, Edward willingly fell into any scheme which the fertile brain of his aunt could suggest against Charles of Anjou. Margaret's plans all aimed at some poor sort of revival of the Kingdom of Arles, that shadowy middle kingdom which had maintained a fitful existence as a borderland between France and Germany since the ninth century, but which now had been for nearly two centuries in abeyance and split up into petty feudal states and subject only to the nerveless grip of a puppet emperor, was slowly drifting towards incorporation with the French monarchy. She sought to raise up in Arlette some rival power to Charles of Anjou. Her uncle, Philip of Savoy, was the natural supporter of the scheme, which could not but strengthen his power at the expense of his Provençal rivals. The kings of the Romans, Rudolf of Habsburg, he was seldom described as emperor, as, like Richard of Cornwall, he was not crowned by the Pope, also found one of his main interests in the revival of the Arlette. His election to the empire in 1273 had ended the great interregnum, and had been largely due to the self-denying efforts of Gregory X to restore to Europe its natural head. But the prestige of the Holy Roman Empire was almost dead. France, not Germany, was now the leading power, and the nominal successor of Augustus and Constantine owed nearly all his real power to the resources which he possessed in his hereditary dominions. Rudolf was but the lord of a scanty patrimony in Alsace and Swabia, and was unable to play any great part in Europe. But he was an energetic and active ruler and did not limit his ambitions to Germany. Cut off from Italy by his convention with the papacy, he turned his attention to the Middle Kingdom and found in Margaret of Provence and her nephew Cordial and congenial allies. He now invested Margaret with Provence. It was but a formal act, but the form might well have been followed by very real results. Edward now entered into the combination. In 1278 he signed a treaty by which his daughter, Joan of Acre was betrothed to Hartman, the son of the King of the Romans. Among the lands assigned as Joan's dower were some of the districts which in the next generation became the seats of the infant Swiss Confederacy. Rudolf despaired of getting his son chosen emperor, but thought that the Kingdom of Arles might be revived in his favour. With the English and Savoyard support, there seemed no small prospect of realising such a scheme, which, had it been carried out, might well have changed the course of later history by closing the lands between the Rhone Valley and the Alps to French aggression. But a sudden change in the policy of the papacy dashed all those hopes to the ground. In 1280, a new pope, Nicholas III, faithful to the policy of Gregory X, succeeded in reconciling Rudolf and Charles on the basis of establishing an equilibrium between them in the Kingdom of Arles. To the deep disgust of Margaret and Edward, Rudolf abandoned the proposed English marriage and accepted an alliance between his daughter and Charles's eldest son, by which the bride was to bring the Arlate as her wedding portion to the Angevin heir. In 1282, Hartman was drowned in the Rhine. However, it was not his death, but the change of policy that preceded it that prevented Joan reigning over the Arlate. The triumph of Charles over Margaret in the Kingdom of Arles was the more bitter, as it was attended by a still more signal victory over her at her son's court. About 1280, the specious and dexterous Angevin had insinuated himself so completely into the good graces of his nephew that Margaret's influence was practically destroyed. From 1280 to his death in 1285, Philip saw only with the eyes of his uncle, and abandoning Louis's policy of the gradual development of France, embarked in grandiose schemes of aggression in Spain and Italy, which simply served the Angevin interests. The results of this new policy of the French king were 
were extremely important to Edward and England. The ink of the Treaty of Amiens was hardly dry when fresh difficulty arose with France on account of Edward's enemy obtaining the first place in Philip's councils. The consequences were soon seen. Since 1276, France had been at war with Castile and had laid violent hands on Navarre. Edward had laboured strenuously to bring about peace between Philip and Alfonso. In 1279, at Pope Nicholas's suggestion, a conference was fixed to meet at Bayonne, in which Edward was to act as mediator between his brother-in-law and his cousin. Then came the change of French policy, which resulted from the triumph of Charles of Anjou. Edward's mediation was curtly rejected. Charles' son, the Prince of Salerno, was appointed mediator in his place, and even the King of Castile showed the utmost distrust of Edward. The English king was deeply annoyed. You know, he wrote to Philip, that I have wished to labour to bring about peace through my own efforts, but the king of Castile has discovered that I am too lazy and too sleepy to be entrusted with so delicate a task. Edward's anger with Philip made him fall readily into new intrigues by which Margaret of Provence sought to wreak her vengeance upon the Angevin. He sent his faithful seneschal of Gascony, the Savoyard John de Grailly, a man of great ability and experience, to assist his aunt in carrying out their plans. The widowed Queen Eleanor threw herself actively into the scheme. Edmund of Lancaster and Champagne, disgusted that the French had taken Navarre out of his white hands, became an ardent partisan of Margaret. In the autumn of 1281, a crowd of feudal chieftains met at Macon in Burgundy and pledged themselves to prosecute her claims over Provence by force of arms. In 1282, the parties to the League of Macon were to meet in arms at Lyon. Edward himself promised to send troops to the rendezvous. If he could not win the late for his daughter, he might now hope to secure for it for his kinsman in the House of Savoy, to whom he was now, as ever, most warmly attached, but for whom, since the terrible expense of the barons' wars, he could do hardly anything for on English soil. But the great plans of the Confederates of Macon were never destined to be realised. The statesmen of the 13th century could form great plans of international intervention, but they seldom had force sufficient at their command to realise them. A motley league of feudal seigneurs could do but little against the kings of France and Naples. Edmund of Champagne was too weak. Edmund himself was too distant to be of much real help to them. Philip III laboured vigorously to reconcile his uncle and mother. Margaret, despairing of the, the way of warfare, was forced to leave her cause in the hands of her son's lawyers, who finally awarded her a money compensation for her abandoned rights over Provence. Edward's conduct all through was both honourable and able, and increased material his position in the eyes of Europe. France, however, remained the real victor. And in 1284, the marriage of the heiress of Navarre and Champagne, Count Edward's stepdaughter to Philip the Fair, the son and heir of Philip III, destroyed the last hopes of establishing a new English principality in France. Edward's tenure of the regency of Champagne was thus abruptly brought to an end. As soon as his wife's daughter had entered into her twelfth year, its custody passed over to her youthful husband, the future king of France. Except in name, Champagne now lost its independence. It was soon destined to swell the domains of the French crown. Renewed troubles now beset Edward in Aquitaine, which was still governed by the Seneschal, Grailly. But these sink into insignificance as compared to the Great Revolution which followed the Sicilian Vespers in 1282. The dominion of Charles of Anjou was thrown off with the energy by the Sicilians, who called upon Peter, King of Aragon, to be their king. Charles, who maintained himself in Naples, now united with the Pope in urging his nephew, Philip III, to join in a holy war against the Aragonese, 
who thus presumed to trespass on the lands granted to the Angevin by the Holy See. Edward carefully kept aloof from the quarrel. When a foolish proposal was made that the dispute of Charles and Peter should be fought in a tournament of Bordeaux, he refused to take any part in so fantastic a business. No, he wrote to Charles, that to gain two kingdoms such as Sicily and Aragon, I would not be the umpire of such a battle, but I will strive manfully to bring about peace and concord between you. His earnest mediation produced no result. In 1285, Philip III had led a so-called crusade into Aragon, but his army was discomfited and he himself perished beyond the Pyrenees. His death marks not merely the end of a reign, but the end of an epoch. Within a few months, Charles of Anjou, Peter of Aragon and Pope Martin IV, the furious French partisan, were also in their graves. The new French king, Philip the Fair, at once withdrew from the crusade. The new king of Aragon, Alfonso III, left to his younger brother James the dangerous and precarious throne of Sicily. The new king of Naples, Charles II of Salerno, was a prisoner of his Aragonese rival. No party had force or energy to accomplish anything great, and all now longed for peace, and turned to the strong and impartial king of England as the one monarch in Christendom, who was both able and willing to mediate between their conflicting claims. Edward now saw a chance of realising his dearest ambitions. In 1286 he quitted England and did not return until 1289. At Armines he met with the new King of France, Philip IV, who accompanied him to Paris, where he performed the homage due to his overlord for Guillaume and obtained a final settlement of his claims on Lower Quercy. Thence he travelled to Bordeaux, which became his headquarters for nearly three years. He had once busied himself in procuring peace between the French and the Aragonese, sparing neither expense nor trouble to reconcile the fierce antagonists. At Christmas time he presided over a great conference of envoys at Bordeaux. In summer of 1287 he held a personal interview with Alfonso III, the new king of Aragon, at Alorion in Bern, where he succeeded in persuading Alfonso to agree to release the imprisoned king of Naples in return for a large ransom in recognition of Alfonso's brother, James, as king of Sicily. Confident that peace was once more established in Europe, Edward again took the cross at Bordeaux and busied himself with preparations for a new crusade. But the Pope repudiated the treaty, whereupon Edward set himself to work once more on his peaceful mission. In 1288, Edward concluded a second treaty, which resulted in Charles's release. Edward himself finally needed all the money for his ransom. But no sooner was the King of Naples a free man than Pope Nicholas IV released him from his oaths, and the war was renewed, though now limited to Italy. Edward warmly denounced Nicholas for stirring up warfare among Christian kings at the very moment when the Christian cause was its last gap in Syria. He sent an envoy to Italy who procured a truce between the King of Naples and Sicily. Despite the furious partisanship of the popes and the greed and perfidy of the temporal princes, Edward had brought about his great work, the pacification of Europe. The successful mediator of the great peace now stood in the foremost ranks of the European sovereigns, but all his hopes for a crusade were doomed to disappointment. Urgent business called him back to England, and the pressure of the Scottish succession question and constitutional difficulties at home diverted his mind from the affairs of the continent. The three years' sojourn of Edward in Aquitaine was an epoch-making period in the history of Gascony. Whatever leisure the great mediation allowed, Edward devoted to putting the affairs of his French dominions on a sound and satisfactory basis. He crushed a formidable conspiracy at Bordeaux, which sought with French help to undermine his power, and dealt out stern and rigorous justice to the traitors. Yet he did his best to promote the commerce of Aquitanian capital. 
and posed as a benefactor of all cities of his duchy, seeking in them as best support against the turbulent feudal nobility. A characteristic part of his policy was the setting up of a class of new towns called Bastides, which were at once centres of expanding commerce, bulwarks of English power, and refuges for the country folk in times of war and trouble. Many of the most flourishing cities of Aquitaine look up to Edward as their founder. Some, such as Sauveterre, the safe land, suggest in their name the object of their establishment. Among all the Bastides of Edward's foundation, Libon, which takes its name from the rising Tuscan port of Leghorn, Livorno, is perhaps the most important, situated at the confluence of the Dordogne and the Isle, at the highest point where the wine ships that traded with England could sail up from the sea. Livorn was admirably situated for the trade, and no less well placed as an outpost of the military defence of Guillaume against French aggressions, as a refuge in time of war for the neighbouring country folk. It grew so rapidly that one time it bared fair to a rival of Bordeaux itself. It soon reduced in insignificance its older neighbours like Fronsac, hidden away among the slopes of the vine-clad hills, and the more famous Saint-Emilion, where a great military station had gradually grown up on the slopes of the strange amphitheatre, round which clustered the dense mass of houses that had gathered around the rock-hewn church of the hermit saint. Its plan, simple and regular as of an American city, was that of the class of Bastides, its eight main streets as straight, if not as broad, as those of its American antitypes, radiated from a central square wherein the public buildings were situated. Ample charters of liberties attracted a numerous population within the strong walls. But the modern Le Bon contains that but little that remains one of the age of Edward. Its steady and long-continued prosperity has allowed but few memorials of the remote past to be seen in its busy streets. It is in some of the remoter and less prosperous of Edward's foundations that the characteristic features of the Bastide type can be best studied. Little towns such as Beaumont, Montpensier, placed on the extreme north-east frontier of Edward's dominions, in the rolling hill country between the Dordogne and the Lot, and still far removed from the railroads or great highways, preserved to this day in their quaint arcaded central square, straight-cut narrow lanes, fortified churches and picturesque houses and walls gateways, an appearance not very dissimilar to that which they must have possessed when they were built, all at one time, at the bidding of their English duke. Yet even in his policy of founding towns in Aquitaine, Edward struck at no original line of his own. He was neither the first nor the only founder of Bastides. Alphonse of Poitiers built the great Bastide of Villefranche de Rouget. St. Louis himself had created one of the most important Bastides in the new town of Carcassonne, still dominated by the wonderful fortress of the Cité crowning the steep hill beyond the Ode, whose walls first set up by the West Gothic kings and the Languedocian counts and restored to which they are almost present shape by St. Louis, still remain as the perfect type of a medieval stronghold. Every little prince and bishop followed the example of the greatest lords of the South, and Edward was the only one of a crowd of imitators. Yet he carried out his work with imitation of the Bastide type of town more thoroughly established in his Aquitanian inheritance, and nowhere did the new towns have more important and lasting influence over the land, which they both dominated and protected. Edward busied himself with improving the administrative system of Gascony, and attracting the Gascon gentlemen to the service of their dukes, both at home and in England. His seneschal, John de Grady, gave him sufficient assistance. He was one of the many Savoyards who had sought promotion in the lands ruled by Eleanor of Provence. Abandoning his home, now called Greedy, 
a few miles north of Geneva, and became by Edward's favour one of the territorial magnates of Aquitaine, and the founder of a house whose descendants, three centuries later, mounted the French throne. His elevation shows not only Edward's constant regard for his mother's people, but some sort of a design of setting up new families unconnected with the region, and owing everything to the king, as a counterpoise to the old feudal aristocracy. By such wise measures, Edward laid the foundations of that close union of duchy and kingdom which lasted through the storms and troubles of a century and a half. He could not change the conditions of his rule there, but he organised and simplified the chaotic constitution of a feudal state. Nowhere can his claims to statecraft be better demonstrated than in his government of Aquitaine. We have perhaps dealt at some disproportionate length on Edward's early continental policy, but no side of his career throws greater light on his statesmanship, and no side of it less generally known in England. It has become the fashion to say that Edward's great merit was that he gave up all thoughts of the unprofitable Aquitanian heritage, and threw his whole energies into purely British questions. That Edward was above all things an English king, no one will deny. That the most important results of his work were seen in the organisation of English institutions, and in the attempted extension of English rule over the rest of the British Isles, is equally plain. But it is a very false and one-sided view that ignores his constant and vivid interest in his Aquitanian inheritance, that puts aside as of no account his watchful care of English interests in Europe and his constant efforts, in cases where direct English interests were very little involved, to uphold some sort of European balance, while strenuously striving to preserve or restore the peace of Europe. Edward's European policy was preeminently a policy of peace and mediation, but it is not to be ignored because his reign was marked by no great continental wars of his own seeking, and because it requires some effort to unravel the tangled threads of diplomatic negotiations through which Edward made his influence felt all over Europe. Not the least striking of his policy of mediation is its amazing modernness, yet Edward was above all others a man of the Middle Ages, though medieval aspirations after a crusade jostle strangely with his modern conceptions of political balance and the policy of interests. But the truth is that too much has been made of the contrast between medieval and modern, or, if we like it better, we may say that there was already a modern side in the policy of the great national kings, who in the 13th century and begun to replace feudalism. There was a European political system before the days of Francis I and Charles V, and there was a need for a Wolsey in the 13th almost as much as the 16th century. The 13th century statesmen were not, as we are commonly told, altogether absorbed in home problems, and too feeble or too much wedded to routine and tradition to look abroad and take a comprehensive view of the European situation. They were, as well, able to plan the partition of a neighbouring state the degradation of a rival as a descendants of modern times. What makes the real difference between them is, and that they had not sufficient material resources at their command to carry out with any great effort the bold combinations which they had plotted. Edward's favourite projects partake of his characteristic ineffectiveness, but unlike Charles of Anjou or Philip the Fair, he limited himself for the most part to what was immediately practical and immediately necessary. His wider schemes, such as those for the revival of the R8, show medieval statecraft in its feeblest and most important shape. But when all the deductions are made, Edward remained one of the greatest English kings, even in his foreign relations. He won for England a sure and foremost place in the councils of Europe. His honesty of purpose and his ability of conception have won the warmest praise both from his own contemporaries abroad and from those modern foreign writers to whose works we must, 
to the disgrace of English scholarship, have recourse if we wish to learn how truly great was the great English king when all Europe welcomed him as the mediator of peace, when his friendship was sought by every power of Western Europe, and when he made the name of England respected and feared in Germany, in France, in Spain, and in Italy. End of chapter 5